Okay, well, I'll go ahead and get started. You all are settled in. Thank you all for coming. My name is Ravi Chandra. I'm a psychiatrist and writer here in San Francisco. And I wrote this poem uh, about this. My heart flutters and pounds, trying to fit its skeleton key into the lock of the world, but finding only a wall. My heart flutters and pounds, trying to fit its skeleton key into the lock of the world, but finding only a wall. This talk is based on the third annual talk I did on a panel at the, Asia, at the American Psychiatric Association's meeting since 2017. There's been increasing tension in the air about the State of the Union, especially now in 2019, uh, and there are times I've felt that the idea of America in, it, in itself has become like the weather in San Francisco, three seasons in a day. Um, so just to remind us where we're at, this is where we're at, narcissism in the American psyche. So today I'm gonna to talk about narcissism and uh, social media and the political consequences as well. So I'll give you my uh, summary conclusion right off the bat. So I don't know if any of you have heard about Harlow's Wire and Cloth Monkey. So this is a famous attachment uh, uh, theory experiment where uh, Harlow, the experimenter, uh, set up a wire monkey with a, a, a head and also a terry cloth wrapped monkey. And uh, the, the wire monkey actually had the bottle, had the feeding. But the wire monkey, the, the cloth monkey had no bottle. Um, but still, the baby monkeys preferred the cloth monkey. Uh, because it felt better, it felt more comfortable to be have your arms wrapped around cloth. So just the importance of attachment, and there are all sorts of ethical problems and so forth associated with that experiment, but, but still, uh, the essential point is that attachment uh, is, is so important. Um, and so, well, what's happening here? <laughs> So the rolling wire monkey gathers no moss, and that's just the way I like to uh, summarize. You've heard the, the, the rolling stone gathers no moss. Well, the rolling wire monkey gathers no moss, which is what I think is a consequence of an out-of-control narcissism which uh, involves relational deficits and, and, and improper attachment and, and so forth and, and compassion. Um, so narcissism is a disorder involving empathy, attachment, relationship, and self-concept with often disastrous consequences for both narcissists and those in relationship with them, which is basically all of us right now, not naming any names, but basically all of us. So uh, Google searches for narcissism hit an all-time high in February of 2017. I think we can all figure out why, um, but interest has been steadily increasing for the last 15 years since Google started keeping track. And I blog for Psychology Today, and very frequently I notice that the most popular blog posts have had to do with narcissism. Uh, blog posts with titles like, How the Three Types of Narcissists Act on a First Date, Why Is It So Hard to Leave the Narcissist in Your Life, and Is Facebook Making Us Narcissistic? I wrote that one. <laughs> Six common traits of narcissists and gaslighters. I didn't write the rest of these. Seven ways narcissists manipulate relationships. 
four ways to tell if you're dating a sexual narcissist, which is not in the DSM, but, uh, but uh, there's a blog post. And finally, do good teachers need to be somewhat narcissistic? And I think this is good news for me because it's only somewhat. <laughs> All right. um, so, um, so we are increasingly interested in narcissism, particularly in identifying and coping with people who we consider difficult and even dangerous in relationship. And at the same time, a proliferation of reality TV shows and social media often seem to promote narcissistic values, uh, such as grandiosity and antagonism. We are enchanted and terrified by narcissism. Our media environment stokes our desires for popularity and admiration, yet often burdens us with social comparison, shame, envy, loneliness, depression, and anxiety, which have all increased particularly in the generation born after 1995, uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so. so. But this obsession with narcissism goes back millennia. Every major religion contains admonishment against narcissism and self-centeredness. So happy is he who has overcome his ego from Buddhism, mitayaku, mitu, mitakuye oyasin uh, from uh, Native American uh, tribes, which means we are all related, talking about interdependence, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, so the golden rule is present in some form in all faiths, in instructing us to treat others as we wish to be treated, not to view others as inferior or as enemies and thus harm them, which is a common narcissistic paradigm. Certainly loving others and doing good to them is part of all religions as well. Um, indigenous beliefs, uh, called primal religions by Houston Smith, uh, recognize interdependence and the fundamental equality of all life. Chief Seattle famously said, what we do to the web of life, we do to ourselves. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, points out that the Torah contains 39 commandments to love the stranger. Loving strangers is the Torah's most prominent imperative a decidedly non-narcissistic act if you're doing it right. Uh, the Ten Commandments implicitly admonish believers to not devalue others and thus wrong them by killing, stealing, lying, and so forth. The Beatitudes place high value on humility, meekness, righteousness, and making peace. Jesus went even farther and instructed his followers to love their enemies. The Bhagavad Gita states the best person is one who feels the joy and suffering of others as his own because he sees the same soul in all. The Shia Imam uh, Muhammad al-Bakir said, love is the faith and the faith is love. And Buddhism's ultimate target is the self-centered ego itself, which it teaches gives rise to hatred, uh, greed, and jealousy, and all their sequelae. Uh, the Buddha said, hatred never ceases by hatred, by love alone does hatred cease, that is the eternal law. So as an observer of religion, there seems to be broad consensus that self-centeredness is part of the human experience that we must strive against mightily, individually and collectively. If narcissism in its essence is a self-concept separated from others, unable to relate well to others, and always in strife and antagonism with others, thus always causing harm and causing suffering, uh, and always suffering oneself, then all these religions showed humanity a way out. Of course, we don't always stick to the high road, people don't practice what they preach, uh, and religion can amplify self-centeredness and tribalism as well. 
Um, religions can be theoretically good, but organized religion has done great damage in the world, especially when it's magnified authority and power and not compassion, relatedness, and science. So narcissism is a fundamental, and self-centeredness is a fundamental question of the human psyche. Am I for myself or am I for others? What is the balance within my own mind and actions? Uh, perhaps anyone with, a, uh, with any kind of inner life thinks about this question, this balance. And society depends on us asking this question regularly of ourselves for all members of the community to contribute to the well-being of others and the well-being of the culture. So there are three types of narcissists, the grandiose malignant, the vulnerable, and the highly functioning uh, or charming narcissist. And that's to be distinguished from healthy narcissism. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but there's a great deal of overlap, and I won't get into many of the details between these three categories of narcissists. There's a great deal of overlap between them, and there's not always a clear boundary between healthy narcissism and these others. Now, we all go through a narcissistic phase in our, in our life cycle, uh, and, uh, and, and conditions can push us around on the spectrum, and uh, certain conditions can cause us to appear more narcissistic. Um, and the, it's a problem if you're too narcissistic or if you have too little self-love. So it's, it's, it's good to have kind of be in the middle and be able to balance uh, things, all right. So, but you have to know where is your eye. So there's my little eye right there, all right. So narcissists and narcissism can bring out difficult emotions in us. And uh, I have, a, I know someone who said a long time ago, uh, 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 never say you're sorry because it, you lose power when you say you're sorry. This person, to my mind, was, was really a narcissist because how uncaring is it to not say you're sorry uh, and to be only concerned about your power in relationships. So, so relationships should not be just about power. Uh, and sh power should not be the primary factor in relationships. But some people think this way. Um, and I think narcissists uh, often have kind of a piece missing. They, they just don't get relationships. Either they've suppressed that or they've never had those kind of relationships that are mutual, uh, or, or there's, you know, there might be something uh, you know, uh, neurologically uh, uh, off with that. Oh, sure, sure, go ahead. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, nar narcissists can bring out difficult emotions in us, like feeling devalued, certainly, feeling angry or bitter, uh, feeling controlled, feeling gaslighted when they insist on their reality and they don't, uh, they don't actually see the real truth, uh, uh, feeling helpless, feeling dread of seeing them. Uh, uh, you can get pushed if you're faced with, an, with a really narcissistic person. Your thoughts and emotions can go inside yourself and it's hard to kind of find yourself again. That's called involution. You can feel like an extra in their movie, like an object for their use. Uh, and you can, but you can also feel idealized, at least temporarily. And this is all because the narcissist uh, has a paucity of their inner life, or there's turbulence in their inner life, which they haven't come to terms with. So, so they're suffering too, I think, on a deep level, although they may not be able to admit it. Now, it would be nice if a narcissist came with a name tag. Hello, my name is an egomaniac but they don't, uh, and we can't always spot them and say, keep calm and get over yourself, which is what, what they really should do. Uh, hello, start seeing the rest of us. Um, 
Okay, so narcissism is uh, not just an individual concern, it's a societal concern. I don't believe in one-size-fits-all narratives about society or life, but if there was one, for, for me it would be how self-centeredness lies at the root of most of our evils. Um, so self, here's self-centeredness, uh, and it causes empathic deficits, cognitive distortions, and relational problems. And that, in turn, leads to suffering for self and other, uh, and also an excessive focus on wealth, power, and status, uh, and uh, mistrust, because they're, they're not being mutual in relationship. Uh, there's antagonism, incivility, and violence, and uh, loneliness and isolation uh, can result, uh, but also devaluation on a larger level, tribalism, tribalistic nationalism, racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, religious intolerance, environmental devaluation. Oh, we are more important than the earth, you know, and that's, that's essentially a narcissistic uh, attitude to have. Um, and so self-centeredness feeds into the individualistic, narcissist, individualistic, narcissistic, tribalistic, competitive culture that we have. And I think this feeds into what Martin Luther King called the giant triple, uh, the giant triplet uh, of racism, materialism, and uh, militarism. Um, and I think underneath all of that, there's uh, underneath those uh, supposed ways to have power over someone else is insecurity, inadequacy, insufficiency, and disconnection, which is, uh, I think, what, what most narcissists feel on a deep level, even though they may not ever betray that in how they act or maybe even in their inner life. But, but, uh, but, to, but to view this world this way uh, does betray a, a, a profound disconnection. So Americans view other Americans as more narcissistic than themselves and more disagreeable and antisocial. This is from some research from 2015. Um, and here are some examples of why we view other Americans as more narcissistic and individualistic than ourselves. So San Francisco has been great at promoting designated bike lanes throughout the city, but selfish parkers ruin all that. And here are some photos of people parked in the no parking zone, in the bike lanes. So there's one everyday example. So here's another example that's gonna hit home for all of you. Um, okay, let's roll. Here we have the subway wars, interdependence versus individualism, Japan versus the United States. First, Tokyo. Everybody moving to the side uh, to let people get off. It's all very orderly. Here we go, nice and smooth. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, typical BART platform. Now there are places marked where the doors are going to be when the train stops. And that's just where everyone clots. Look at this poor guy trying to get off. Look at his eyes. Subway wars, a small indicator of cultural differences. How do we internalize the needs of others? An ongoing saga. Uh, but getting onto the train and off of the train, um, I think I think it's just a different way uh, they view each other. Uh, I'm sorry, you had a question? No, I, oh. um, 
it's just that I, I have heard the opposite about Japan, and certainly know that it's, that it's an it's a real crunch, real crutch. Right, they do have people who push people into the subway cars, that's true. Oh, but that's uh, yeah. different from, okay. Yeah, so it, it does get very crowded. So I, yeah, I'm making a, a dramatic uh, uh, polarization here. Okay. Maybe there are, you know, uh, but that was certainly my experience in traveling through Asia and getting on public transit. Uh, people tend to be more aware of space. And, you know, I think, uh, during rush hour, people do line up in San Francisco at Montgomery Street and, and Powell. You'll see people lined up, but, uh, but the in, ingress and egress is not usually as organized as what yeah. we saw. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, um, so uh, globally, Americans are viewed as more narcissistic, extroverted, and antagonistic than citizens of one's own country. We have wealth and power and thus are seen as grandiose and self-important by the rest of the world. This, this, uh, these ratings come from a study published in 2015 and you wonder what would those ratings be like four years later given all that's happened. Um, granted, there are perception, these are perceptions only and there are examples of America's generosity and so forth, but, but I think it's, it's something um, that we have to kind of contend with. Um, Okay, so uh, uh, Tom Wolfe wrote about the me decade in the 70s, 1976, I believe. Here was a cover story of the New York Magazine. Prosper basically, the thesis was prosperity begat indulgence in counter sessions, communes, sexual revolution, psychedelics, and this he called narcissism, the great, the third great awakening. The two previous great awakenings were Christian. Uh, revivalism in the 1800s. Um, and he said at the end of this article, this one has the mightiest, holiest role of all, the beat that goes me, me, me. So self-indulgence and all of those things that I mentioned sound very much like California. Um, uh, so it might be, self-indulgence might be seen as a process of discovery as well, uh, self-discovery. So perhaps the me decade was also a revolution against the strictures of prior social roles. But, um, but that's when we started talking about it. And, and uh, about uh, uh, at the end of the 70s, uh, this book came out, Christopher Lash's The Culture of Narcissism. And Christopher Lash described an exhaustion of drives and a bankruptcy of ideas in capitalism and liberalism, and the center does not hold in post-war America. And in this vacuum, we turn to the self. And he quotes from a uh, business management book uh, about the corporate leader. He wants to be known as a winner, and his deepest fear is to be labeled a loser. Instead of pitting himself against a material task or a problem-demanding solution, he pits himself against others out of a need to be in control. As a recent textbook for managers put it, uh, success today means not simply getting ahead, but getting ahead of others. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, not a, that's not a friendly place to be. <laughs> um, so this is more from the culture of narcissism. Appearances now count for more than performance. We think about social media is also like that these days. Self-approval depends on public recognition and acclaim. Today, men wish to not so much be esteemed as admired. They crave not fame, but the glamour and excitement of celebrity. They want to be envied rather than respected. Pride and acquisitiveness, the sins of an ascendant capitalism, have given way to vanity. 
And the American Revolution gave rise to a society based on individualism, competition, and the pursuit of the main chance. But he traces this back even to the Puritans, who, despite talking about being abstemious and, and uh, good to the fellow man, etc., uh, and, and controlling one's desires, they waxed fat and prosperous on the trade in rum and slaves. So, I mean, this is, this is from the beginning, and uh, I left these slides out, but even our American Constitution was, uh, you know, promised equality, but really set it up uh, for white male landowners. And if you were not a white male landowner, you were a second-class citizen. So these are obviously, we, we've had to battle against this, uh, this, uh, this uh, very earliest form of narcissism. Uh, which led to uh, many things, which we'll talk about. So this is a more recent book in 2009, Twenge and Campbell's Narcissism Epidemic. And through their research with uh, tens of thousands of uh, narcissistic personality inventory scores, uh, uh, they found that the NPI scores reached a high amongst millennials, so those born between 1980 and 1995, and this was published in 2009. One in 10 young people in their 20s at that time endorsed narcissistic personality disorder in their lifetime, as opposed to only one in 30 people over 64 years old. Now, maybe people over 64 are losing their memory, I don't know, but, uh, but, uh, but so this is a dramatic change, 10% versus 3%. Um, so they pointed the finger at the self-esteem movement, celebrity culture, easy credit, and the phony self in social media, along with a need for admiration. So about uh, just under 70%, 68% of people, uh, American adults, are on Facebook, about the same amount on Snapchat amongst 18 to 29-year-olds, um, and Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, all those others are uh, less than 35%. These are statistics from 2018. So the major vast majority of American adults are on social media, um, and uh, uh, some of them probably take up a lot more room on social media than they need to. Um, again, not naming any names, but um, uh, most of the research focuses on Facebook. Now, 68% um, of adults are not narcissistic, but the medium is the message. I write in my book that globally, Facebook is larger than the Catholic Church and approaches the number of Christians worldwide. It's like three and a half billion uh, now. It's actually more than the number of Christians worldwide, I believe. Um, so I won't get to all my points about social media, but uh, I refer you to my book, Facebook uh, Transcendence in the Age of Social Networks, and, and my website, facebook.co, and I talk more about narcissism online. But, um, oops. all right, so, um, does social media attract narcissists, or is it making us all more narcissistic? Are we the frogs in the social media pot as it's slowly boiling and we don't really recognize what it's doing to us? I don't know. Oh, wait, I forgot something. Oh, gotta take a selfie. So he doesn't realize he's in the pot. Um, okay, so um, in the short run, using Facebook in an active way appears to increase self-esteem, but high levels of Facebook use are associated with a higher level of narcissism extroversion, uh, neuroticism, and low self-esteem and self-worth. The more self-centered, insecure, or disconnected you are, the more time you likely spend on Facebook trying to get a fix. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, low self-worth over the long term. Short term might, might increase self-esteem, but worse, and worse well-being over the long term too, no matter how you use Facebook. Um, so a 2017 meta-analysis of over 25,000 participants from 16 countries, and half of those from the United States, 
showed a significant correlation between grandiose narcissism and the number of Facebook friends, the intensity of Facebook usage, and uploading photos. And in countries with large power distances, more hierarchical societies, which discourage narcissistic display in public, social networking sites seem to unmask narcissism. So you're, it's safer to be a narcissist online in these cultures than it is in person. Do you have a, okay, all right, yeah, all right. So uh, other studies have shown that a narcissism predicts increasing Facebook use over time, at least for men, uh, and that interacting with one's Facebook profile increases narcissistic scores in the short term at least. Um, higher levels of narcissism also predicted more time spent on Facebook um, and, uh, and, and more self-promoting content. And together these data suggest a reinforcing spiral of effects. Narcissists are attracted to social media, they are more active in specific ways that I mentioned, and their behaviors are often reinforced and validated by their online communities. Um, indeed, Facebook addiction has been correlated with narcissism. So Facebook users uh, have been found to be more narcissistic, more extroverted, and have higher self-esteem in the short run, run at least, than those who don't use Facebook. Um, so uh, for me, the polarization and anger being expressed online is profoundly disconnecting. So are you coming to bed? I can't, this is important. What? Someone is wrong on the internet. Oh, I've got to. I've got to respond. I've got to type my message. So that's a, that's a pretty common uh, category. And and I, there's much cause for anger right now. A lot of wounds are surfacing, um, and they're coming out online. But I call Twitter, especially our auxiliary amygdala. It's our fast-reacting uh, threat survival threats uh, sensing survival brain. And so people dump a lot of emotion into the online world, and yet. You know, I think these emotions, anger, can only be resolved with compassion and relationship. And so I wonder about what happens when people do this emotional dump online, and then they probably feel better, but, you know, everybody who has to read it is, like, reeling with it. And, and so, so that's, that's, I think, a general problem um, uh, for society. Um, so I call social media very divisive. Um, paha. So, moving on to American culture, um, the director John Ford famously said of John Wayne, that son of a bitch looked like a man. Um, what kind of manhood have we idealized? America has idealized the individualist, individualist ethos uh, since its founding, and it is a settler frontier nation, uh, created by settlers, expanding into a frontier, and thus America advanced the archetype of the rugged individual, utterly self-reliant, depending only on his guns and wit to survive. The individual had to be ready to kill animal predators and was encouraged to kill Native Americans as well to claim his territory and protect his kin. Um, so, um, uh, this is Chuck Connors from The Rifleman, um, but, uh, but William Walter Weil, who later founded the New Republic, wrote, the open continent intoxicated the American it gave him an enlarged view of self. It dwarfed the common spirit. It made the American mind a little sovereignty of its own, acknowledging no allegiances and but few obligations. It created an individualism, self-confident, short-sighted, lawless, doomed in the end to defeat itself as the boundless opportunism that gave birth to it at last became circumscribed. That was written in 1912, but 107 years later, it seems profoundly relevant right now. Uh, the boundless opportunity 
Tunism that defined, that gave birth to it is being circumscribed. And we see what's happening, I think, at the border. You know, this is, this is what happens when, we're, when we have no more frontiers. And now we think technology is going to be our new frontier. And I'll talk about that in some later lectures. Um, so here's a romantic view of that same thing. I, I painted a dark picture of individualism. Here's a more romantic view. Wildcat Willie, looking mighty pale, was standing by the sheriff's side. And when that sheriff said, I'm sending you to jail, Wildcat raised his head and cried, Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in, let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in, let me be by myself in the evening breeze and listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you, please, don't fence me in. Okay, so that was Roy Rogers singing a Cole Porter tune from the 30s. Um, so our liberty was said to derive from a man's ability to move freely across a frontier without a limit. And what does that mean for government? Uh, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution established the rights of the individual against a potentially menacing government. Meanwhile, the government cleared the way for individuals to ac advance across the frontier. Yet the federal government itself was designed with checks and balances to limit the power of any branch of, or individual. The framers of the Constitution struggled with the dangers of power, especially when invested in a single person, the executive. But true to our individualist ethos, over the last 50 years, as I mentioned uh, talking about the narcissism epidemic, right along with that, the executive has gained enormous power. The president, above all, is sanctioned to sing, don't fence me in. Now, you know, I talk about, I'll talk more about executive power shortly, but whom to blame for the executive singing, don't fence me in? Well, I have one. So, um, so an Amer Alexander Hamilton actually advocated for a lifetime presidential term, in effect, an American king. An American king could be a narcissistic sociopath um, if, if the balance of powers are eroded. Uh, David Brooks wrote in a review of Chernow's biography of Hamilton, at Valley Forge, Hamilton saw how fundamentally weak the nation was how lacking in the sort of productive capacity one needs to wage a war or survive as an independent nation. This was the formative insight that shaped his career. He favored more centralized power than most of the delegates and was more suspicious of the masses. Hamilton's effort led to a centralized federal bank and hence the, capacities, the nation's capacity to wage war. Now you could draw a line from that amplification of executive, financial, and military power to America's victory in World War II, but also executive orders such as the incarceration of Japanese Americans during that war, and the subsequent wars since World War II, none of them have been declared or authorized by Congress, from Korea and Vietnam to the Persian Gulf War, Iraq and Afghanistan. So those have been pure executive power and the, the legislative branch has just stood at the side and not taken a, a stand because they're afraid of uh, blowback, I think, uh, of, of being against war, basically, in our system. So, um, Wasn't the Iraq War passed by Congress? Yeah, 
by, by um, Congress? There was no uh, war authorization. That, yeah. There, 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 there was. Because Barbara Lee was the one person who, who refused to vote into. Right. There was, there, I believe, now I might be wrong about this, but there was a budget uh, proposal which she voted against. But there was never a single vote on the war. It was part of a budget, um, if I'm correct. Uh, because the War Powers Act basically has not, you know, has overruled that particular, uh, uh, you know, way of, it's in the Constitution, it's supposed to be authorized specifically by Congress war. But, uh, but you know, they've sidestepped this by making it a budgetary issue. Wow, okay, yeah. that's very, um, It's disturbing, right? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, if, they're, if we're looking at the Constitution now, I mean, that seems to be, well, they've been talking about that, but I didn't understand that. Okay. Right, right. Uh, a great book uh, on this and where I got most of the quotes from uh, is uh, Drift by Rachel Maddow, uh, you know, MSNBC uh, commentator and also historian. Um, but other framers were decidedly more sober on executive power than Alexander Hamilton. James Madison, the fourth president, cautioned against executive powers uh, in 1795. In War II, he wrote, the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied, and all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. The same malignant aspect in republicanism, uh, with little r, may be traced to the inequality of fortunes and the opportunities of fraud growing out of a state of war, and the degeneracy of manners and morals engendered by both. No nation could reserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. Now, that was 1795. Now, uh, these truths are, he continues to say, these truths are well established. They are read in every page re which records the progression from a less arbitrary to a more arbitrary government, or the transition from a popular government to an aristocracy or a monarchy. So he also wrote, the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. The Constitution has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature, but we've seen where that's gone. So many historians conclude that Madison, Hamilton, and their fellow framers were building structural barriers against what they saw as the darker aspects of human nature. Um, and uh, here's another quote uh, from, from that book. Um, the lures to war, personal hatreds, political glory, material spoils, and the simple atavistic enthusiasm for violence might be too enticing for one man to resist and might be too easy to promote, uh, as, um, as Abraham Lincoln said, by fixing the public gaze upon the exceeding brightness of military glory. Uh, Abe Lincoln said that when he was a congressman. That attractive rainbow of military glory that rises in showers of blood, that serpent's eye that charms to destroy, so the framers' goals were for clogging rather than facilitating war, but for facilitating peace. Um, but several presidents unclogged the path to war. Nixon famously advocated for an executive above the law by agreeing with his counsel that if the president does it, that means that it is not illegal by definition. Ed Meese, uh, counselor to President Reagan, and Dick Cheney, ranking Republican on the House Select Committee investigating the Iran-Contra fiasco, 
advocated for essentially unlimited executive power. And more recently, now Attorney General William Barr opined last summer uh, that the president cannot be charged with obstruction of justice because that threat of prosecution would throttle presidential power. So uh, Barr thinks uh, presidential authority regarding law enforcement is illimitable. So there's no limits on executive power, according to William Barr. So we're, we're going to be finding out uh, about, uh, we're going to be testing this in real time. Um, so not only have we culturally supported an individualist ethos and increasingly narcissistic ethos in America, we have vested the most powerful individual in the free world with maximal power. And the founders did not trust any individual with ultimate power, but we have changed. We have aggrandized power and the pursuit of power. This leads to the potential for war and violence, but also tears at the fabric of an interdependent democratic society. We can look at the language currently being offered around the border, migrants, women seeking abortions, and Democrats to see a state of perpetual war being invoked. Um, and in my, in, in my view, uh, empathy, compassion, and restraint, particularly restraint of aggressive impulses, are integral to a healthy psyche and society. Otherwise, who are we? Okay, again, we become this. So, on a lighter note, I'll confess I too have surges of pride that can feel downright narcissistic. Two years ago, the uh, American Psychiatric Association granted me distinguished fellow status, complete with an award ceremony and a medal for, for the whole group of us. I rocked that medal for the rest of that conference week, I kid you not, but I still don't know how to take selfies. You did put your face out there. I know, I, did, I still don't know how to take <laughs> selfies properly. Um, but, uh, but here's my mom, she was present at that, at that meeting. Uh, uh, two years ago, or she was uh, she was not present at the meeting, but uh, but here's uh, some pictures of her uh, doing the tree pose in the redwoods, um, and uh, so we texted a few days after the 2017 APA, uh, and it was on my birthday. So she was glad she didn't forget it was my birthday, uh, as you can see this time. And then I texted her a photo of the APA awards program with my name highlighted, and I was still flush with the pride of accomplishment. Um, and she texts back after a long pause, big list. Okay, great. <laughs> and, and trying to assert myself as the apple of, someone who should be the apple of everyone's eye in that moment, I'm happy to be one of them. And, but she said, yes, all have worked hard though and, and been recognized by the community. Going to Costco now with Jackie for a while. Do you need anything? So that really put me in my place. So, and this was my emotional reaction, what? Yes, so I, you know, my mom was very sweet, and sometimes uh, it, in that moment she was a mother to every single person on that list, and she reminded me to not get full of myself without actually saying it. And that's how you get the wire monkey of ego to stop rolling and gather moss. Sometimes it simply takes being reminded of community. Um, and so here's another, uh, there's a, a, another way I try to remind myself, I'm not a narcissist, uh, is remembering, first of all, all US presidents are rated as more narcissistic than the average American. These are ratings uh, from a, a study in 2013, uh, and Lyndon Johnson then came up as the most narcissistic president. This did not rate President Obama, who was president at the time, or, and President Trump had not yet become president. Um, so Lyndon Johnson in 2013 rated as the highest 
uh, most narcissistic president, followed by Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, also up there, John F. Kennedy, also right up there. In the next group, uh, you see Harry Truman, basically in the middle of the pack, Jimmy Carter, almost exactly in the middle, uh, Eisenhower, um, and less narcissistic than them, Jerry Ford, Abe Lincoln, clocking in solid 32. He's really not a very particularly narcissistic amongst this group. Um, but then finally, the least narcissistic was Millard Fillmore. And this is very important to me because my office is located on Fillmore Street in San Francisco. <laughs> therefore, I'm off the hook. All right. So, um, so thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we can answer any questions or go back and review any other slides. So thank you very much for experiencing right now mm -hmm. um, because uh, um, not just in this country but throughout the world I mean the effect of, of the narcissism of, of this president is um, beyond anything I've ever experienced mm -hmm. and I have I really felt it penetrating my you know my shield. Well, and yeah. getting sick, and people, you know, I know that people are drinking more, and I mean, my neighbor is, and she, you know, and, and um, people are really nervous, and, and, but it's the, it's the speed. Right. There, there's something about the, the speed of, of, of this guy, and, you know, the... On um, Twitter, at least, right? Yeah, but just yes. yeah, but but it's it, then it's matched. Right. It's matched by the the um the cable news yeah. channels that are making oodles of money on this. So that there's a you know there's a real um symbiosis here. Yeah. You well, know. You know I, I you know I think um uh, the current I, I started doing these lectures after. Donald Trump became president. And you know, I'm not going to diagnose him. Uh, you know, I think that's something for a professional to do after they've met with him. And, you know, but I think they're certainly uh, what we can uh, say is that there's, they're, they're, what I'm worried about is abuse of power uh, as opposed to relatedness, opposed to compassion, uh, as opposed to thinking about the, you know, as I said in that slide, uh, uh, you know, a, a difficult person makes you feel like your thoughts, needs, and feelings are not important. And if the president makes a substantial percentage of the population feel like they're not important, I mean, what is that? It's going to give us all those difficult emotions, you know, because, you know, that's, that's essentially what happened to me. I mean, I, uh, after the election in 2016, I began taking self-compassion classes and compassion cultivation training because I felt like I had to boost my own reservoir. Uh, to, to uh, as a person and, and doing my work and being a citizen of this country. And also I, uh, I began to take teacher's trainings and all these because I think we have to, I mean, this exposed a weakness in our psych psychology, if you will, that uh, we have not built out our relatedness and our compassion sufficiently. Uh, and, and also, I, I talked about balance of powers in, in Congress. I mean, that's, that's clearly something that executive power that's going to have to be addressed. But I think we all have to kind of figure out how do we relate to others. I call it a, an identity crisis. Who are we to ourselves and who are we to other people? 
you know? And how can we, uh, you know, be, I think, from my view, better towards other people? Uh, and, and because I think then you can have a virtuous cycle and we can really get at all of these deeply rooted traumas and uh, this web of trauma that we're all, that's been surfaced now. So some people say it's kind of good that, uh, that all of it's out in the open now because now we can really, you know, deal with it as opposed to it being suppressed or not really, uh, you know, so that's one good thing about social media too, I guess, is that, that it does allow for suffering to rise. Um, but how we, how we deal with suffering, I think that, that calls on deeper resources. Something that I'm struggling with is I, although I self-identify as a millennial, I have a hard time being on social media, it's exhausting, I'm trying to stay off of it. But I do see ways in which it is helpful for marginalized communities that can benefit from it. There's a way for us to organize, to connect with each other, to find more like-minded folks. Um, so there's a good in it, but then there's also so much toxicity and negativity. So I'm trying to balance with myself, thinking where where in it is it good, and how do we continue fostering that sense of community across boundaries? Do people find so many connections and relationships? But where is it? Like, how do we make that just remove? Like, do we need to create a different platform and we should pay into it so it's not ads based and there's not like there's a word for it called addictive design or dark design. I think it's like um, the endless scroll on Facebook that's considered dark design, which is meant to keep you on it forever. The red notification button is meant to get you um, excited and get that thrill. Um, so curious to hear how you like to think about balancing the good and the bad. So, I have a plan for that. Oh. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I obviously struggled with these issues too because I was excited by the new medium, uh, the ability to connect with a geographically dispersed community, mm -hmm. to talk about issues uh, which we might have talked about in dorm rooms uh, when I was in college, you know. Uh, you know, we, we could talk about them online, but there's a difference between having a conversation with somebody and blasting a text, uh, a text or an image about something because that quality uh, of social being is lost. We are who happens to us and what we make of the happening. So our minds deepen with relatedness, which I think really happens in person and in conversation. So, so I think we have to recognize what brings us, as we're getting pulled into conversations, what brings us back to our human center? What, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, what, how do we come home? How do we come home to our truest selves, our compassionate, caring selves? And, and I'll also be uh, giving another lecture in a couple weeks about uh, cyberbullying. And, and I think it, but I'll talk more about this uh, social being, because um, uh, I think that's a really important concept. I and mean, who do we become when we're on the internet? Mm -hmm. you know? um, so, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, any other questions? Or? Sure. <laughs> I just can't think of them, right? Um, then on Facebook a little bit, um, you know, maybe, I, I'm not quite sure how often, but I think just, but I, I really, oh man, I, I really reacted <laughs> to one person's picture of herself with Adam Schiff, and I thought, you know, <laughs> I just thought that was really kind of bragging, and it just it really bothered me. I thought, but what what am I trying?
trying to say? Why am I I'm judging right now? But one of the things that I've noticed, I live by myself, and I've noticed that, that I know I go to the computer right away because it's an interactive experience. You know, and I notice myself doing that more. I mean, first, most, a lot, giving as much time to that as I do to reading the newspapers. Um, um, yeah. And so it's just, it's a phenomenon beyond Facebook with me. It's, it's, it has to do with, with interaction with, you know, with the world. Right. Well, with, yeah, I mean, it's, like uh, like you said, it, there are gratifications of being online, and I think you know I have on my uh, facebook.co website there's a mindfulness challenge, so you can actually see, you can you can note how is this media pulling you in, and then take a break from it, see what happens in the real world if you take a break from it, and then you can compare your experiences and make better decisions about your time. I mean, I deactivated for. Two and a half years uh, uh, in 2015, so I missed uh, the toxicity of the election, uh, with what people told me about the election in the aftermath, um, and, and you know I found myself reading more magazines, more books, uh, having more conversations, more lunches with friends, and to me that was satisfying. But I think yeah, sure, I dip back into it now. I go in and off uh, uh, of social media, uh, and I mostly now just post my blogs or or my uh, uh, a joke or something like that. I, I really do my best not to get involved in uh, discussions which are heated because I feel like it's about the connection. But that idea, like the, the feeling like I have to know, I have to know, um, is out there, especially with things changing so fast. Yeah. But I think, I think, you know, you have to, you know, choose for yourself. But I think, yeah, I think just recognizing that process of, you know, I'm really anxious you know, maybe, or recognizing the emotion, boredom, loneliness, anxiety, frustration, what drives us online? And are there other ways to uh, manage that? Um, you know, maybe, you know, and this is, I'm speaking from my own perspective, I find, you know, when I get anxious, I, uh, or troubled, I, I, I meditate, I have conversations, I, I, I might watch some, you know, longer, you know, more in-depth news programs, read articles. So there are different ways to take it in. Um, and I think, again, so what brings us home? I think, you know, we have to have that sense of being ourselves too, rather than being flooded with information. Um, you know, so. I, I don't want to monopolize this. That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Good question. But I, I felt, I mean, actually, I, I just really came had to face myself and what and what was happening with with this whole impeachment inquiry and to me it was it was worse it was more damaging to me taking me away from me and my life and who I you know and almost dysfunctional really I used to work and live on the Navajo reservation and I think there's this whole thing about witching and I, I honest to God I felt witched. I felt that this whole thing has witched me, that it has absolutely, you know, kind of stopped me from functioning mm -hmm. in, in a way, and, and, you know, and 
Um, and beyond recognizing myself as I was, you know, a little while ago, and so, but that was that had as much to do with trying to um, understand and to hear everything that's happening right now. You know, listening to MSNBC from um, from um, Chris. Matthews to Brian to Brian Williams, me looking at it every night and coming out, and then also Fox News and you know and listening to Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, and so then I finally I finally realized it was destroying it was destroying me, so I cut it out until I'm, de I'm definitely cutting it out until Saturday and having guests over on Saturday. It's like I have to I have to perform, so you know. And um, and then, but liver, it was just it was just an amazing experience. I mean, I started listening to music, and that you know, instead of instead of my my nightly diet of of cable news, I was listening to some really nice um, Norwegian band. Uh -huh. and, uh, you yeah. know, exactly. That brought you back. Yeah. Well, just. Me. I, I had to go on a, a, a diet. A media diet. A media, right. a media right. diet. I really did. I mean, it's, it's, it's as hard as giving up smoking. Right. You know, it really is right. really hard. Right. There I mean, should be a Surgeon General's warning on all this. But there should be a Surgeon General's warning on, on the internet. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, yeah, music. The, the song I, I was reminded of while you while you were, uh, thank you for your generously uh, talking about your experience. Um, but I think you're, I think you're absolutely, I think there are a lot of people who feel exactly the same way. Uh, so you're not alone, but the song I, I thought of uh, uh, was Santana's Black Magic Woman, uh, trying to make a devil out of me, <laughs> right? I mean, so that's kind of what this media environment does. It's like, who are we becoming? This is the identity crisis. Santana's. Santana, yeah. Black magic woman trying to make a devil out of me. <laughs> so, um, but um, but yeah, that's that idea. That that's the identity crisis. You know, who are we now to ourselves? We've lost our narrative, our stories. That's the thing that I that I really got from listening to Yuval Noah Harari, mm -hmm. which uh, was yeah. amazing. We've lost our. I mean, our stories don't match up with our reality at all right now. Well, I think, you know, um, uh, I've pu just published my compassion and self-compassion lectures online, and I'll, I'll send you the link to those. Um, but I think, you know, compassion is how we do human. And I think that's why we don't feel like ourselves right now, because the compassion is not at the forefront of what we're uh, really experiencing. Um, and and so so that that is so destabilizing for us. So I think we if we can find this these deep roots of caring, which are really our human story, you know, for for a hundred thousand years. If we can bring ourselves back to that, we can shift the balance, and, and I, I think it's possible. Uh, you know, so uh, yeah, yeah. I actually feel more myself now than I've ever felt. Maybe that's because of my age and growing up. I guess, mm -hmm. but I feel like I'm more myself now than I've ever felt. We always knew that hatred was there, it's just it didn't affect certain people. So I actually feel like now we see the realities of the world more, I understand my place in it, I understand what I need to do. So I, I exactly. have experience. I mean, the environment. And also, I've been practicing mindfulness, right. so maybe that's right. what Right, right. I think you're right, and that's, that's very powerful too, is that, you know, uh, 
we can uh, use the, what's happening to become ourselves too. Like to really double down on our identities and who we are in our hearts and souls, you know. So that's that's the other possibility. Yeah, I just I spoke today with um, some African American people that were a swim, and you know, and what you're talking about, it's no surprise to anybody but the white people. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're all shocked by this, <laughs> and um, people have felt this kind of this horrible experience for a long time and, and no surprise that, that the hatred and the evil has you know has emerged in such a I mean just what we're talking about. Just to be fair, I think the forty percent of people that are still supporting the president really in some way feel like he is uh, he's the angry self you know, speaking for them, who have been forgotten as well. The people right. who have been left behind by various changes and perhaps they don't know how to deal with demographic changes, etc. So, um, you know, and they, they, because they don't have exposure to people of color or women in leadership positions and so forth. Um, so these are challenges yeah. to a way of being. And I think, but I think there's a better way to include those people too. I don't think, you know, I don't think they're, you know, evil people. I think that, yeah. you know, their circum circumstances, as I said in that earlier slide, conditions can push us along a personality yes. spectrum. And, you know, I think a lot of those people have had bad conditions in their lives, too. Oh, yeah. You know, and if you talk about disconnection and lack of relatedness, I mean, I think that's, that's an American problem. You know, that's, you know, that's, uh, and, you know, you know, we've got to, I think if we, if we uh, relate better to each other, even the people who disagree with, especially the people who disagree with us, um, I think there's a possibility. But you have to have the environment that supports that, you know. Um, I think we can come together again. I'm curious about your thoughts of, because um, it, it, there's sometimes I feel like there's certain camps in which, you know, people are like, oh, we should all come together, we should all unite, we should build this bridge across that bridge together. But there are, uh, of the 40% that support the president, there are people there who are just racist people, and maybe they don't have proximity or all those things, but I don't think it should be the responsibility of a person of color to go out and get them. I think it's the responsibility of white allies to perhaps do that. So I'm just curious your thoughts on like, you know, it, it also, it just feels like a burden. Like I go to all these conferences of other belonging, equity trainings, and it's like, oh, the plight of poor white people, we need to bring them in and welcome them. And it's like, you know, this feels like it's on people of color, people who are trying to heal their own communities. Right, I mean, this is how the web of trauma it exists, and I think when people of color, women, uh, uh, other uh, excluded minorities have particularly felt this trauma from this narcissistic society, individualistic narcissistic society. Um, and you know, I think we have to work on on relatedness with whoever you can relate to, because relatedness and compassion heal trauma. You know, that's that's creating the web of healing. And you know, those people, I, I suppose. I, I would like to talk to people who disagree with me, who live in a purple state. I, I don't have that opportunity now, maybe, you know, maybe through my blogs and, and these videos. Um, but to say, hey, we're not scary. We're not, you know, we're an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. I'm not threatening. I'm trying to help the country too and help my community in my own way. And I know that, that all the people I know are trying to build community and connection. We're not threatening 
to their way of life or their identity so much as this is, we're part of a change. I mean, America is changing and, and I think, you know, sure, they have to accept that too. Um, but, um, and, you know, I think they, they may see me as threatening or as a person of color as threatening. But, but I think that's a misperception and a, a lack of recognition that we're all human. You know, so how do we get that sense of common humanity back? Um, that's, I think that's important too. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we have to be willing to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can say, uh, this is how I think, and maybe I need to change, but then I'm not quite willing to change. Right. I mean, we're, you know, um, I've had to change. I know. You know, in my life and in the last two years, I, I, I would like people on the other side to be more open to perspectives coming from uh, these other angles, too. Um, I would like that. Um, I, I, I wish they had, you know, more people in their lives that they can talk to and, and kind of expose uh, themselves to new ideas and, and uh, just... The people that want to change, yeah. talk to people that want to yes. change. Right, yeah. right. Well, and, and that's, people that don't change, right. you know, there's sort of a, a blank wall. Well, there, there, you know, there's research on this, a 20-minute conversation uh, with somebody on an issue, for example, a transgender uh, rights. A 20-minute conversation can change a mind. And this, this is solid research um, that's been done. So, you know, so I think, and, and you know, uh, just, you know, a con an empathic conversation, taking in the perspectives of someone else, but also giving them a new sense of information, but also respecting them as human beings, not simply saying, oh, you're, you're devaluing them just as they might devalue you. I mean, I think that's important. And then, then I think you can get some movement towards, um, towards at least relationship and acceptance. But I think there's some problems like, um, you know, I think um, uh, certainly uh, like uh, uh, people who are uh, only talk to like-minded individuals and are so certain about themselves and there's no fluidity in their thinking, that's really hard to deal with. Yeah, if you're just so... Right, are right. Differences in, differences in values too. Right, And then if you're... Exactly. If you're mm -hmm. uh, if you're exposed to that, then you're more willing to right. hear. Right, right, exactly. And certainty is a really, that's a hard, hard problem to, to face. And, uh, um, you know, I think, you know, especially when it's teamed up with thinking that you know what God wants, you know. I mean, uh, you know, that's how some people justify, well, this is, mm -hmm. this is what, you know, the Lord or my religion. This happens in every religion. There's some kind of certainty. And, and I think all religions ultimately are about, you know, what's that famous saying? Um, uh, do, not, uh, do not do what the great ones did. Or do not, do not follow uh, uh, the great ones' footsteps. Uh, seek what they sought. So I mean, that kind of deeper sense of connection with the bigger picture, rather than I have these certain ideas and that causes me to devalue other human beings. I don't think, you know, no religion at its core is, a, is really about devaluing other human beings. Uh, I think that's not, that's not, from my perspective anyway, that's not, that's not, uh, that, that's, that's hatred. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not the core of uh, every religion. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll be fine for as long as the environment doesn't go away. 
physical environment, yeah, a natural environment, a natural one. That's a big crisis right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this talk. More of these lectures are at sflovedojo.org and also at ravichandramd.com. Thank you, and please leave a comment or a like, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.